This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L. K. This is part two of DSA's session called Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, Reviving the American Labor Movement from the Socialism 2022 Conference in September. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend it. In part one, I introduce the panelists. In this episode, we'll hear from the remaining panelists, Olivia Prager, a medical case manager working with adults living with HIV and AIDS at Howard Brown Health Center, who enlisted the help of Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee, also known as EWOC, to organize her workplace, and labor historian and EWOC organizer, Gabriel Winand. We'll also hear from Tristan Bach-Hughes. The moderator is Daphna Tier, also an EWOC organizer. In part one, panelists described what EWOC does and where it came from, and they told stories about actual transformative experiences of empowerment by workers because of their acts of collective action and solidarity in the workplace. It is this kind of empowerment that can bring workers together, no matter what their ideology is, to improve their quality of life and the quality of life for the entirety of the working class. role of what EWOC does um, besides, you know, kind of the single issue campaign or this, you know, the demands campaign. Um, Tristan, can you talk, I, I feel like lately EWOC has been getting more and more and more workers that are just outright contacting us about wanting a union. And I'm wondering if you can talk to us about how you think EWOC is contributing to union drives in the country. Yes. So I think this is one of the most useful things of EWOC, which is that when my first uh, uh, union job, I was an external organizer for a small union here in Illinois, uh, and I had no idea how to really identify leads, the people around me. Uh, it's actually the same place I work now, Illinois Nurses Association. I didn't know what I was doing, like just to be totally blunt. And there wasn't really any place that I could go that could teach me how to get from step like zero to 50 with people. Most of the time, I, I would say 80% of unions in this country, if a union drive that they're working uh, with somebody on is going to be successful, the workers have to come in at like step 30 or 40 of that process. They already have to be pretty self-organized in order for that union to get them across a the finish line and get them to that first contract. There's got to be some level of like social cohesion in that group. There's got to be some level of like agreement, uh, you know, an organizing committee, something like that. Or a lot of unions just give people benchmarks and say, come back when you have this and they don't really tell them how to get there or even like offer advice about like what could work or what could make it more likely. That is where Ewok really found our niche. You know, we see our role as being step like zero to 50. You know, we're, we're getting people contacting us who are sometimes literally isolated militants in a workplace where they don't know a lot of their coworkers. 
And we kept getting people like that. And, you know, at first had the traditional super union response of like, well, I don't know if there's much we can do with those people. And then we realized, well, those are the people reaching out to us. We've got to figure out what to do with those people. And so we started thinking like, well, what does it actually take? So this is how we reframed our training to be like, well, actually, you've got to socialize before you organize. You actually have to like get to know people. You've got to figure out creative ways to like get a sense that uh, just like build discussion spaces where people can feel open enough to talk about the problems that they're experiencing. And then finally, it's the conduit. You know, the most workers in this country, I've, as a staff person, been in a position where a group of workers will reach out to us from a state like Iowa or Arizona and just literally won't know how to get in touch with the union. And frankly, even with our connection of hundreds of union organizers and activists across the country, we have trouble sometimes tracking down unions that will work with a group that feels very ready because a lot of unions in this country are not actively organizing new units and don't take that seriously as like a task that they should be taking on. So that is something that Ewok kind of had to fill. We had to create some kind of system where with this funnel, any worker can reach out to us. And if they want to unionize, we can go, okay, let's find this right person. Let's find this good organizer in this union. Let's connect them and let's ferry that relationship, hand off that relationship enough that if it drops, which sometimes happens, they know they can come back to us and we can keep working with them until we find them a new person. And and on that note, I want to give Olivia a chance to speak. So, Because Olivia, you are someone who recently won a union drive and originally your coworkers reached out to Ewok for for that reason, right? So can you tell us about that? And what made what made you reach out to Ewok and then um, and also, like, what made you all want a union? Yeah, so like uh, Tristan was saying, I mean, we came in three people who uh, wanted to do a Hail Mary for our organization and essentially organize 460 to 475 people, if possible. Um, so we were just three dudes in a Zoom meeting, just hoping for the best. Um, so Ewok essentially did help us identify our first steps, and then they connected us to the appropriate representative organization, which happens to be Illinois Nurses Association, um, and with a organizer to help us begin our campaign, because again, we had no idea what we were doing. We were like, we probably need a union. Okay. Um, <laughs> some of the reasons we felt like we did need a union, um, we had severe and still have severe understaffing due to really, really, really high turnover rates that was significantly impacting our levels of patient care. And we were seeing that in our individual patient interactions. Um, there's mismanagement of programs and funding by our executive leadership. There's lack of transparency from executive leadership to our workers, but also between departments. There's inconsistent safety policies during the pandemic. And then there's extremely low wages with little to no recourse to get a raise unless you get a cost of living raise, which is essentially negligible because no organizations are actually giving you the cost of living raise that's comparable to the the cost of living changes, or you can become management. And many people don't want to do that for obvious reasons. So <laughs> will you tell us a little bit about what the organizing 
actually look like and what did you do to win a majority support from those like three people in a room to yeah um well forgive me this is going to be long-winded but um so we immediately did emphasize like Tristan was saying the importance of socializing and building a network of trusted confidants and so we identified organic leaders we connected with our trusted peers and we did also make a note of people who might have really close connections to management and were not necessarily safe contacts in the beginning aspects of our campaign um, when we were bringing in new members, we did make sure to find coworkers who ideally had a pre-existing relationship with that person, which often yielded a lot better results than having just somebody that they never talked to before reach out out of the blue and say, hey, do you want to be in a union? Um, and then we practiced it. We practiced distributed organizing by providing specific tasks to individuals. We also had designated groups. We had a comms team. We had a get out the vote team. We kind of set aside specific groups. So we were doing specific tasks. So we weren't burning out all of the individuals that were involved. Um, and then we had an air table program that was built out by the MIT union that Tristan also worked on, which was based <laughs> on the EWOC model. Um, and that was extremely helpful when it came to tracking our contacts. We have an enormous enormous amount of staff members across the city. And so we had to have a way to track the tasks we were doing as well as the contacts we were making and what those resulted in. Um, we really at no point decided that winning a union was the only way to put pressure on our management. We simply did not know if that would happen and honestly did not expect that it would. <laughs> um, so many of us do work from home, not all of us, but we did have to find kind of creative methods to organize and to put out our message and the issues at hand. And so we used um, an all staff messaging system we have called Ring Central, as well as social media to create kind of electronic actions that you know, or creative pandemic ways to still be organizing on top of a couple of in-person events that we did as well. And then we also coordinated with our NLRB to allow electronic cards um, during the pandemic for added accessibility. Only got two more points, I promise. Um, we used our unique knowledge of our workplace and the queer community, which most of us belong to and work for, uh, to really gauge how far we could push the envelope when it came to agitating our coworkers as well as putting pressure on our bosses. And then the campaign is self-run and it's democratic. And while we did take the advice of our reps the vast majority of the time, uh, there were experiences that we had that provided kind of better context to what would and would not work for this very specific, unique campaign. And our reps did follow our lead, often with a little bit of hesitation. Um, but it worked out well in our favor. So we ended up winning our union early in August. I think it's so helpful to have sort of these case studies that we can look at and see exactly what they did. And I'm hoping that people in the audience will speak to that when we get to discussion. I did though want to take a moment to talk to Gabe and actually this time if you don't mind coming to the podium, um, because you recently wrote an article actually with Tegan about how EWOC is helping revive the American labor movement. And I, you know, that's exciting. Um, <laughs> um, and so I'm wondering if you, you can talk a little bit about how this may be given your background in his and labor history is how this compares to previous efforts in the labor movement and um, and maybe some of what are the specific challenges today that, that we face that EWOC is maybe helping to address. Yeah. Um, so I think it's actually quite helpful to, to think a little bit about the history of 
UE, one of our kind of parent organizations here in the way that it was formed in the early 20th century. Um, so, uh, the, you know, one of the basic dynamics of American labor history is that capital brings workers together before they organize, right? Um, they hire people who they want to hire to make the profits they want to make, and we don't choose each other in that way. Um, and then we build organizations where we've been brought together, and then capital changes again, right? Takes on a new form and erodes or shatters or warps the organizations that we've built over the course of years, decades, generations, such that always throughout labor history, the landscape is kind of like littered with these sort of like desiccated hulks of the organizations that got built in the previous generation. And we're trying to figure out, is there any life in that still? Can we still put that to work? Can we kind of get it going again? Do we have to abandon it? Do we have to break it open somehow? Um, and UE itself, in a certain way, our, one of our, you know, our parent or parent union, kind of emerged from a process like that when skilled workers, skilled craftsmen in the early 20th century, who controlled the pace of production, had their, had that control broken by basically the rise of like the assembly line and scientific management. And that process turned lots of them into radicals, in, in particular in the IWW. I see our comrade in the IWW shirt in the front row. Um, and for years, in the teens and especially the 20s. Those workers were pariahs in their workplaces. They're, you know, they like they got blacklisted. Their coworkers knew, "Don't be seen talking to that guy." Um, but when the '30s and the Depression came around, there was this layer of workers like that um, across our comrade Barry Eidlin in the middle here has written great stuff about this across the American industry, um, who carried this memory, carried this tradition, um, and in particular. I think very importantly, we're often linked to ideologically radical socialist or communist or anarcho-syndicalist histories and organizations. And in the 20s and 30s, I really got embodied in a kind of sequence of organizations called the Trade Union Unity League, Trade Union Education League. There's complicated histories here, the details of which are not super important for this discussion. What's important for this discussion is that throughout American labor history, moments of revival have come, uh, and in particular, most famously in the 30s, but not only, when you have this kind of layer across American workplaces of people who have, have a language and a set of ideas and a set of practices and a set of experiences that they can put together across uh, the kind of divisions of American workers that those desiccated old labor organizations are often not able to bridge between because they're kind of stuck in whatever little island that they are trying to kind of hold to life on. Um, and that's really how I think of the role of EWOC. I mean, that's kind of ambitious view of it and hope set of hopes for it, obviously. Um, we don't have a communist party or something like that in this moment, although, you know, DSA is sort of a kind of functional equivalent, hopefully. Um, but um, in some ways. Um, uh, but uh, I do think that um, the role of the organization is to allow that kind of what's often been called a militant minority to connect to one another across workplace to workplace to workplace to see one see ourselves in kind of class terms in that way uh, and to substitute for like the uh, you know musculature that uh, more ossified labor organizations can't really develop. We've heard from all of the panelists. At this point in the session in Chicago, there was an overwhelming number of participants telling stories in their workplaces and asking questions about Ewok. Daphne, the moderator, let everyone ask questions before asking the panelists to respond. Everyone on the panel took a moment to answer the questions. Though in this episode, I've only included Gabriel's and Tristan Bach-Hughes' responses because they tie Ewok to the greater socialist struggle. 
Okay, there's a lot of questions there. I'm certainly not going to try to address them all. I guess I'll try to speak to the questions about um, the direction of the labor movement more broadly. I think those are the ones that were sort of directed some, some more at me. Um, you know, I think it's very hard to, like, generate an a priori kind of formula about what exactly we have to do. Obviously, we're in a stage of experimentation, and I think we have to continue to be in a stage of experimentation for the foreseeable future, which is another thing, the E, and I mean, it's sort of emergency experimentation, but it's another way of thinking about the E, baby. Um, but, uh, you know, I do think this also goes to the issue that a number of people have raised about what do you do about your more conservative union or even your more conservative co-workers? I mean, obviously, we want to be supporting, and DSA is certainly interested in supporting the building rank and file organizing. But I think that um, a lot of our co-workers and even maybe some significant number of our kind of like union bureaucrats don't understand that there is a rapidly growing reservoir of militancy, in particular among younger workers, that has something to offer. And if they were made to understand that there's something to offer there, certainly they wouldn't all like, you know, jump to like that. But I think that there's a lot of winning over of people that we can do when we show that we have something to bring to the table, that we actually are a source of power. And our vision and our capacity to organize and our militancy and even our experiences of like what a shitty labor market looks like for young workers experiencing really high turnover, it's a source of power um, or it can be. So I think that uh, just from my own perspective, I imagine even comrades on the panel don't share this with me, but I think something that Ewok should be looking toward hopefully in a relatively medium term future is trying to build industry or sector level workers committees that aren't trying to displace the unions that are there, but are trying to figure out how to bring workers together across different lines of different unions and skill and race and class and gender and sexuality and all kinds of things, and to bring a little bit of that industrial level militancy. So I'm going to try to address some of these uh, questions. So um, I think the one of the these questions kind of built a pathway, uh, even in you know what was being asked, because the emergency means problems. The emergency means that there are problems that exist in a workplace that need to be addressed. And I think when we talk about bread and butter issues, oftentimes when we say bread and butter, people hear economic. And what I have found in getting the privilege of being able to watch like several hundred worker campaigns play out over the last few years and like working with the organizers who were actually, uh, you know, supporting those campaigns is that. A bread and butter issue is the issue that is energizing the workers to take action. It is the thing that is on everybody's mind that they want to address. And in figuring out how to address that, I think this is where we sort of see how do we move from just like understanding, you know, uh, racial, gender, sexuality, solidarity, and actually developing political analysis. Because in order to effectively win a workplace fight, you need as close to everybody to be involved and, you know, taking part in determining what is the demand, how are we going to win that demand, what is the strategy that we are moving on as you possibly can. That is a basic principle of solidarity. If you leave those people out, then they're the bosses now. The boss is going to bring them in. And that's something that most workers, no matter what background they have, are going to uh, understand, even if they don't like it. For me, that is different than political analysis, because what Ewok has really found is that the political analysis comes in the debrief. The action has been taken. The process is ongoing. We are in motion. And now we get to say, why do we think that worked? Why didn't that work? 
you know, uh, why did this boss not flex, you know, back? Why did they cave? And that's where you can start to talk about things like capitalism, uh, like corporate power. Cool. Uh, and then just for freelance, look to the trades, uh, actually having like, uh, some sort of like a regional system where you have basic like standards set. Traditional union workplace organizing is based on the workplace, but there are unions that exist and have existed for a long time that are based on a region where you set standards. This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L.K. If what you've heard today sounds all too familiar and you'd like to talk to an organizer about how to improve your workplace, the link to Ewok's website is in the show notes. Provide your contact information and a little bit about your workplace. Ewok will get in contact with you. Ewok also has an online four-week training series every month or two. And if you're not ready for that level of commitment right now, they have organizing resources on their website. I encourage everyone listening to this to go to their website and click on resources. Last, if you can afford it, we have a link in the show notes where you can make a donation to Ewok in order to make sure they can help as many workplaces as possible. I'd like to thank Sean Larson from Haymarket Books, Casey Sticker as a key member of our tiny team for sound engineering, theme music, and editing, and Palmer Conrad for additional help getting this podcast out. If you're a member of DSA, please share this podcast with your local chapter. Class is intended to be a resource for chapters and members to articulate, apply, and share socialist theory with DSA and the wider working class. Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. 